Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment of your time to let you know we have finally upgraded our website www.theguiltpodcast.com. It now features a lot more information and is just in general much more useful and looks better. Make sure you get over there and sign up to our new email newsletter, which will be going up free and will keep you updated on the podcast and the cases as they move forward. And the fancy new website design is courtesy of our friends over at Medio Street Media, who are ready to help take your business to the next level. You see, there are countless ways to market your business online. And yeah, that can be overwhelming. But it's not about doing everything. It's about doing the right things. At Medio Street, they take what's often seen as black magic and make it practical. With custom marketing plans, driving leads for businesses in any industry, with any budget. You can check out their toolbox, including web design, social media marketing, SEM, SEO, video production, and more at Mediostreet.com. Conversations are always free, so reach out today to get started. That's Mediostreet.com, M-E-D-I-O, street.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On the last episode of Guilt... My phone just dinged and a message from someone that I've been speaking to about the case, just someone who contacted me through Facebook who's familiar with the area, just saying I've been called by someone saying that they, the police are at Parakawai and they've found Heidi's body. It's been a big mystery for years and years and I think the thing that, because we live here, it's been sort of like hanging over our family too because yeah. a lot of it was quite a mystery about our family as well. So I was like, fuck, it would be good to clear it up so that, yeah, that thing doesn't hang over them, you know? And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, 
I'm Ron Wolf, and this is Guilt. This case is incredibly complex. I'm going to make you a promise right now. At times, it's going to confuse the hell out of you. I'm going to do my best to try and remove the clutter and highlight the most important elements of the case, times and dates. But if you're that way inclined, you might want to grab a pen and paper and make notes as we go. Because even for myself and others that know this case well, we still find ourselves going round in circles at times. In some ways, this case is made up of two parts. Part one is the trial and conviction and subsequent appeals of David Tamahedi. Part two is the mystery surrounding the discovery of Urban's body in Parakawai, 73 kilometers away from where it was said to be. In episode one, we touched very briefly on the overview of this case. Now, over the next few episodes, we're going to delve much deeper into the details of who David Tamahedi was and analyze the case made against him by the Crown and also highlight his defense. Before we continue, I want to quickly address something, and that's pronunciation. Māori is the indigenous language of New Zealand. Many names and place names in New Zealand are Māori, and their pronunciation can differ depending on the speaker. Correct pronunciation requires the R sound to be rolled, which is not the common vernacular although this is improving over time. When I'm investigating a case, it's crucial that those listening are familiar with the people and places I speak of. So sometimes I make a judgment call as to how I pronounce a certain name, in the common vernacular or correctly. I understand it's not perfect for some people, but for the purposes of the podcast, I deem it necessary. The name Tamahiri, for example, is correctly pronounced Tamahiri. As this name is going to be used often, and I don't see any confusion arising, I've decided that from this point I'll use the correct pronunciation, David Tamahiri. I want to make something clear from the outset. David Wayne Tamahiri is not a nice guy. Regardless of your beliefs about his guilt or innocence in the murder of Heidi and Urban, he was already very well known to police. Tamahiri had served a two-year sentence for the killing of 23-year-old stripper Mary Barcham in 1972 when he struck her in the head with the butt of a rifle. Tamahedi was found guilty on the significantly reduced charge of manslaughter, 
claiming the killing was simply an accident. While holding the rifle, he turned and happened to clip her in the head, causing her death. He then fled. John Hughes, the somewhat infamous head detective in charge of the case against Tamahedi for the murders of Heidi and Oban, claimed that he had a conversation with Tamahedi where he confided that the killing of Mary Barcham had a distressing effect on him mentally, but he had come to grips with it as time had passed. I haven't read the details of that case, but I must say that I find this claim of accidental death dubious at best. In 1985, Tamahedi would tie up and rape a 62-year-old woman in a home invasion, a crime that Tamahedi would later describe as the worst crime he ever committed. At the time of the murders of Heidi and Urban, Tamahedi was on the run after skipping bail for the 1986 six-hour torture and rape of a 47-year-old woman in Auckland, New Zealand. He would then effectively go bush. Using the vast network of tramping tracks in the Coromandel Forest to elude authorities, using the alias Pat Kelly, until he was eventually arrested in Auckland on May 24, 1989, after being recognised by a police officer as a bail jumper, six weeks after the disappearance of Heidi and Urban. And this is effectively where this story begins. As Tamahedi sits in a jail cell after police finally caught up with him for his rape charge, Lead Detective John Hughes walks into his cell and tells him to come clean and tell the truth, that he's involved in the disappearance of the Swedes. Truthful, Tamahedi was not. In his initial statements, he admitted to stealing a number of vehicles, but claimed to have no knowledge of the white Subaru, until he realised police could place him in it. If you'll recall from episode 1, eerily, after the disappearance of Heidi and Urban, Tamahedi would then drive another Swedish tourist and two others on a personal tiki tour of the Coromandel in Heidi and Urban's white Subaru. It was one of these tourists, Hakan Bokul, who contacted authorities to say he had not only met Pat Kelly, but spent two days with him. He described Kelly as being about 30 or 35 years old, 180 centimetres tall, with dark brown, almost black shaggy hair and a big bushy moustache curving down over the corners of his mouth. He said he had no visible scratches and mentally seemed normal and didn't act in any way untoward towards the Canadian and Swiss woman also on the impromptu tour. Bokul stated that he found him quite nice when we travelled around. Bokul said there was no luggage in the car, only a bucket with a fishing line and a telescopic casting rod. When police inquired where Bokul had met Kelly, he gave the location of the Sunkist Lodge in Thames on April 10th, 1989. Very quickly, police were able to check records at the Sunkist 
to find, indeed, Bokul had stayed on April 10th, and also Pat Kelly, who it seemed had made a number of outgoing calls, one of which, when traced, led directly to the home of Tamahedi's wife, Christine Tamahedi. When Detective Peter DeVoy visited and found Urban Hogland's jacket draped over the back of a chair with a label cut out of it, he said, I knew we'd cracked it. Once he realised police had connected him to the White Subaru, Tamahedi had little choice but to come up with a different story. In his second interview, he remains adamant that he never met Heidi or Urban, but now tells police that on April 10th, he walked 4.5 kilometres up Tararu Creek Road in Thames. This dirt road winds up a valley into the bush, and despite being in Thames, feels quite remote. Once he reached the road end, he found a white Subaru with bull bars, full of camping gear. Seeing no one around, he claims he felt the exhaust pipe, and when he found it to be warm, came to the conclusion that the owners must have recently left for a hike into the bush along the trail. He sees the driver's window is down around two centimetres, and finds a nearby piece of wire, which he uses to unlock the car door. He then throws the piece of wire over the bank, before opening the glove box and finding a spare set of keys. He then decides to steal the car. But before driving away, he takes the time to open the boot and rifle through Heidi and Urban's belongings, throwing the items he doesn't want down the bank next to the car. He even takes the time to cut the labels out of some items he believes might be useful. Like, for example, Urban's jacket, which was later found in his home. He then claims to have driven the car the approximate 10 minutes into Thames and checked into the Sunkist Lodge under his alias, Pat Kelly. The rest you know. He takes the other tourists on the tour of the Coromandel. But as you can probably guess, the police don't buy this story. First, Tamahedi claims he walks up the 4.5km Tararu Creek Road to find the car and the exhaust pipe hot. He says he wasn't passed by a single car on this walk, which means he couldn't have been passed by Heidi and Urban. So naturally, police test how long the exhaust pipe will remain hot after the car has been turned off. They ran the vehicle until it was hot and found that after the car had been switched off, it took 30 minutes for the tailpipe to cool to the same temperature as the rest of the car. The problem here for Tamahiri, there's simply no way he could have walked up the 4.5km Tararu Creek Road in 30 minutes. And as he wasn't passed by a single car, then he has to be lying. Of course, there are potential unknowns here. Could Heidi and Urban have left the car running for a time upon reaching the car park? Perhaps to listen to music? And thus the tailpipe was still hot on Tamahedi's arrival? The next issue is the process by which Tamahedi maintains he unlocked the car. And this was by using a piece of number 8 wire from a nearby fence, which he bent into a shape 
that enabled him to reach in and unlock the car. When the group that included Harry Goodwin and Jennifer Gladwin came across the car on Sunday, April 9th at around 1pm, parked in the same location Tamahiri described, they didn't recall the driver's window being down at all and that the car was completely secure. Harry Goodwin recalled that he was in the market for a new car and when he saw the for sale sign with the listing price of just under $3,000, he thought it might be a good buy so gave it a once over to check its condition, even pushing the bull bars down to test the suspension. He said, The thing that surprised me was the property left inside the car because there was no one around and it would have been very easy for someone to break into the car. In the front seat, I noticed at least one camera and possibly a camera bag. I also noticed two or three dark colored packs, the type used for tramping, in the back of the car. If the car had remained unmoved overnight, between when it was seen by Harry Goodwin and when it was supposedly stolen by Tamahiri, then the fact Goodwin recalled the windows being secure is important, as it would effectively make Tamahiri's lockpicking story impossible. Of course, we must consider Goodwin could have been mistaken and simply not noticed the window down two centimetres. So police gave him the benefit of the doubt but when they attempted to pick the lock in the manner described by Tamahiri, they were unable to do so. While it doesn't mean it's impossible, remember Tamahiri is no stranger to Grand Theft Auto, it certainly makes it less likely. As an added note, despite extensive police searches, they were never able to find the piece of wire Tamahiri claims he used to pick the lock then threw down the bank into the thick bush. We now move on to what has to be considered the most damning piece of evidence in this carjacking story. According to Tamahedi, after locating the keys in the glove box, instead of immediately leaving in the car in case the owners were to suddenly return, instead, he takes his time. Opening the boot of the car he proceeds to rifle through Heidi and Urban's belongings. Items that he doesn't want, he casts away into the bush down the bank. As I mentioned earlier, he even takes the time to cut out labels from items he fancies for himself. So why would he do this? As you can imagine, the Crown asserted that the only logical reason Tamahedi would take his time in this manner is if he knew the owners were never going to pop out and surprise him. Because he knew they were dead. And finally, something which I personally find very hard to fathom. The fact that if we believe Tamahedi, after stealing the car, he simply drives five minutes down the road and checks into the Sunkist Hotel. Surely, if you knew the owners of this car were going to emerge from the bush and find their vehicle stolen, you'd realize that the first thing they're going to do 
is walk into town to the nearest police station and report it. And Tamahiri didn't attempt to hide the vehicle. He simply parked it out front of the hotel in plain sight. Again, the Crown arguing that he knew he could do this because he knew the owners were dead. No one was going to report it stolen. No one was going to come looking. And in a nutshell, this is David Tamahedi's defence. That he walked up Tararu Creek Road around 1pm on April 10th, 1989, found the car, picked the lock, dumped some of the gear, and drove to the Sunkissed Hotel. If only it was that simple. Things are only going to get more bizarre from here. In the next episode, we're going to look at the Crown's case and those involved, including secret witnesses and mystery campers. But before we do that, I want to visit the site of the alleged car theft. Because oftentimes, it can be difficult to really understand a scene unless you stand there and see it with your own eyes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Today, I'm traveling with my colleague and general guide, Alan who was a hunter and bushman with decades of experience in the Coromandel. He became intertwined with this case after making national news in 2017 when he discovered a bag of clothes discarded in the bush near Wangamata, which some believe may be related to Heidi's disappearance. We'll hear from Alan the details around this discovery in an upcoming episode. But since then, he has spent a considerable amount of time poring over the details of this case, hoping himself to find that missing piece of the puzzle. Tararu Creek Road is not what I expected. It follows the edge of a narrow gully and is a rough, winding gravel road, interspersed with slips and boulders that have come loose during the recent rains. A stream runs down to our right, and a steep cliff rises up to our left. We can clearly see sections of the road have been repaired in recent times due to completely slipping away. After about 10 minutes, we pull up and climb a fence, 
before continuing a further 100 metres to where the road used to terminate in 1989. As we reach the old road end, it's not at all what I expected. No stones, just grass. To the left, an old corrugated hut has been converted into a home. And behind that, an interesting looking building stands on stilts. Chickens roam free, and it has the air of communal living to it. But this is all from more recent times. In 1989, only the corrugated structure was present, and unoccupied. This place, despite being only 10 minutes from Thames, feels incredibly remote. So we've parked and we're making our way up a the old the old road, it's actually completely grown over now. It's certainly quite spooky thinking that at some point someone drove this car up here. Who was it? So where are we here now? This is the old turn around here. This is where the road finishes. Okay. And that's where the track starts. Yep. Up to Crosby's. And where was the car? Right there. Facing up that way or? Facing down. Yeah. They turn around, the car was parked here. Or just there. Or somewhere just here. Yeah. Facing downways. Here it's in the book. Yeah. That's where all the gear was thrown. Oh, I see. Over into here. Okay, so it's actually quite close to the edge of the bank. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody lived here. So when they came up, the people came up, they turned around and parked here to look at that farm there. And the farmer come up and met them. It was like a runoff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when they come up... Oh, sorry. <laughs> when they came up, they saw the vehicle and it had a for sale sign on While they were waiting for the farmer to come up, they come over and they walked around it because it had a for sale sign. Yeah. You know the story from Yeah, there. so this is where he said they saw the packs right and here. everything in it. Yeah, inside and, it. All the, and they said they knew must have been a day trip because all the sleeping stuff was still in the car. That's what they thought, the people. Mm. But when Tamahiri come up, right, he looked at the vehicle and thought, oh, yeah, so he says. He went over and he reckoned he got a bit of wire off a fence over here. Mm. Broke it off, come over, and he pulled it, opened it up, scuffled around, opened the thing, and found the keys in the glove box, right? Yeah. You know the story. So he starts just pulling gear out, bags, oh yeah, I like that, throw that over there. That just, to me it doesn't, yeah. to me it looks like a, because the clothing was all there, and then, if you go over here. I can see now though, you know, they talked about the police saying that, they, he says he threw the thing, the number eight wire, and they never found it. Over I can there. I can see why now that could be possible because it's it's rugged bush, and it's pretty steep. But anyway, that's by the by. But yeah. I can see now this is it's more rugged than what I expected. Okay. Well, well, he said he threw the wire. He showed the police down here somewhere, right? So he threw the wire. Yeah. Hey, why would you throw a wire over there? And, you know, why would you bother? Yeah, I don't know. If you if you're going to flog it, you just mm. pull it up and just. 
So this hut here was just empty. It was just empty. There was a, a lot of old gear and shit in there. Somebody must have lived there. I actually stayed a night in there when I was like 17. We had the horse here. <laughs> Fucking crazy, eh? And the tent was found in there on its own. I'm not going to get into the detail of this now because it's really going to twist your mind. But weeks after this area was supposed to have been forensically searched by police, a tent belonging to Heidi and Urban was discovered sitting in a cupboard in the hut. Behind, on its own, behind a bloody big, somebody was shuffling around, reckoned that they were shuffling around in there two months later. they come up and they were just having a look around. And they went and had a look around and then they found it in there. Does the person live there now? That's private, sorry. As we walk around the site, we make our way beyond the end of the old car park to where the tramping track to Crosby's Clearing begins. It is on this track the Crown alleges Tamahedi met the Swedes before murdering them at the Crosby campsite. Just to be clear, the track from here to Crosby's is three to four hours of rugged, extremely difficult tramping. As we approach the end of the grass area, a gate and small bridge marks the start of the trail. And bizarrely, it was here that another piece of evidence was found by a local farmer. A name tag with Heidi's name on it. Edward Corbett found the tag hanging on the fence and had initially cast it to the ground. Eventually, when the missing Swedes became national news, he recognised the name and raced back to find the tag and alert the police. But the bizarre thing is that this is nowhere near the other items that David claims to have thrown from the vehicle about 40 metres away. How did this tag get to be here? Hanging on this fence. Almost as if left like a breadcrumb for someone to find. Pointing in the direction of the tramping track. In another strange twist, two weeks after the official search, a member of the search and rescue team, Graham Pierce, would decide to conduct a search in his own time and 1.5 hours up the track, would find Heidi's shirt neatly folded just off the path, as well as items from Urban's wallet. Perhaps another breadcrumb. These pieces of evidence are going to be important, and we'll discuss these in further episodes. Yeah, so looking around here, Some things just start to not quite add up. You actually really have to come here to get a real idea of of what you're looking at. The fact that the ticket is found on the fence, which is a good sort of 30, 40 metres away from the car. And so if David came, stole the car and threw the stuff out, how does the tag get there and how do the other things get up the track an hour and a half there's only a, a couple possibilities. Either Heidi put them there to try and leave a trail, but why would your abductor let you leave a trail? The police have put it there because, I don't know, if you believe David Tamahiri's story, they're trying to frame him. 
or alternatively someone else has. They've created this breadcrumb trail as a decoy after they dumped the car here. It's rugged bush up here, very, very rugged. Uh, so the other thing is the hut here, which is a private hut where the tent was found. It's just a strange sort of anomaly. I'm going to knock on the door and see if someone's home quickly. I don't think anyone is, but... You know, yeah, I'll get that. Hello? Knock, knock. A pair of muddy boots sits in the doorway. But sadly, no one's home. I'd love to see where this tent was found, but it won't be happening today. I put the drone up to get some aerial footage of the scene. You'll find that on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. Then we pack up and decide to run the route back down Tararu Creek Road, Tamahiri claims to have followed to the Sunkist Hotel. After a short five-minute drive, we pull up outside an old colonial-style two-story building. Today, it's been converted into a bed and breakfast and renamed the Lady Bowen. We've just pulled up at the, the old Sunkist Lodge, which is now called the Lady Bowen Bed and Breakfast. And it's a beautiful old colonial wooden building, two-storied. And you'll see a lot of these type of buildings in Thames. Not a, not a huge building. It's got old wooden fire escape ladders on the side and a little wooden balcony. But you can't help but wonder, just to give you an idea, so behind this building, if I look past it, back in the direction we've just come from, there's hills and, and bush, you know, thick bush. I'm not talking about open pine trees. This is thick native New Zealand bush. But so we've just driven from back where David Tamahiri said he stole their car from. You know, it's only been a 10-minute drive to get back down here. And you have to ask yourself the question, if you've just stolen someone's car 10 minutes up there at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, would you then drive it 10 minutes into town to check in to a local lodge and park the car right outside? Because, of course, the people that you've stolen it from, they might end up walking back down that road in the next few hours into town and say to the police, hey, our car's been stolen, and oh, there it is. Unless you knew that those people weren't going to be coming back for that car. In that case, well, then you've got nothing to worry about. It's just another another crazy element of this whole thing. I'll ring the bell and see if anyone answers. G'day, how, hey, are, mate, you? how are you? Not too bad. 
Hey, um, I'm uh, doing a podcast about the murder of Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglund back in yep. 1989. Yep. And I understand this used to be the Sunkist. Used to be Sunkist, yes. I, I was wondering, is it possible? Would I be possible to just have a quick look and, and just see what it used to look like, or is yep. it still in its old sort of original state? When um, you're talking about when David Tamahiri yeah. stayed here, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, backpackers then. Yeah. So. From what we can make out, it would have been he would have been in one of the bunk rooms. Is it possible to come have a quick look for a minute? Or yeah, I can take my boots off. No, 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 no. As long as I clean. No, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is my colleague Alan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be fantastic. I really appreciate it. Wow, it's a beautiful building, isn't it? Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is beautiful. Uh, I'm in Kerry. Oh, is this Kerry, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The building's 155 years old. Far out. Oh, yeah. it is Kerry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's built in 1868, uh, another 112 hotels oh, in Thames. Yeah. How many hotels were in Thames? 112. 112? <coughs> built in 1868. Far, or far out. I'm a big fan of history. And the owner kindly takes the time to show us around this historic building which at one point boasted five separate bars. It currently operates as a bed and breakfast, and it's without doubt somewhere I'm going to be returning. But for now, the owner shows us to the bunk room where Tamahedi would have stayed, before we make our way out to the balcony, where he points out how close the police station was back in 1989. Okay, so this was... Right, uh, originally one of the bunk rooms, so the bunks are the same as this, two pine, she had nine in here. So it's nine bunks in here, eight bunks in that room there, and I think four bunks in that room over there. I see you would have been in one of these. There as well, so there may have been car park there, but... Yeah, do, you right. know, do you know where the original police station was at that time? Yeah, the original police station is... I don't know what year they moved it, but the original Thames um, police station is... So somewhere not too far away. Oh, yeah. See that red roof over there? Oh, just there. So you've got the grey roof yep. um, of the uh, pump house, and then you come forward and you see quite a high red roof yeah, just with, with a little bit built up on the front of it. Yep. Yeah, that's the original police station there. It's not far to take if you've got a stolen car. Yeah, but then there was um, the new police station, which is also quite old. Standing on the balcony of the old Sunkist Hotel, I look back over Thames and into the thick bush beyond, and I wonder what secrets it holds. Did Heidi and Urban truly meet their fate at the hands of David Tamahedi? in that lonely, isolated place. But if they did, then how did Urban end up 73 kilometres away in Parakawai? Are we expected to believe that Tamahedi carried him out and transported him there? Right now, it still seems such a mystery. But this is the very thing that draws me to this case and the fact that no one really knows. And if I can be the first person to find the answer, then maybe, just maybe, I can find Heidi.
I have a lot to tell you, but I'll save it until we come home again. Everything is okay otherwise. Now I can feel the sun burning my back. It's nice to be able to sunbathe a bit, because often there's been a lot of sandflies around, and you wouldn't dare think about taking the clothes off and just wearing shorts and a t-shirt. If you did that, you would be eaten. Me, anyway. Because they seem to love my blood. Did you recognize the titles of the songs that I sent in the last letter? There's some of them that I have to buy, and I wonder if they will be available at home. Now I have to stop writing this, because I think I hear some footsteps coming closer. It may be Urban. Heidi. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written. Produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with over 1,200 other guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. On the next episode of Guilt. He used to speak for hours on end, but it was mostly him retracing his steps and what if we'd done this and what if we've done that. And that was my one hope. I walked all through the bush up here for years and I always hoped that I was going to find a body, you know, or find a skeleton. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.